Morning. Tell you a little bit more about that a little bit later this morning. I have shared with you before that disunity and division disturb me. They, they bother me uh, to no end. Um, it gets under my skin. And that's not to say that I don't sometimes contribute to the problem. I do. But it, it does bother me. And sometimes it can be in the simplest ways. It can be if a person comes to me and talks to me negatively or complains about another person, that grates on me. Or, or very silly ways. Like, I'm personally disturbed whenever I discover that the cast of one of my favorite TV shows don't get along with one another. <laughs> Many years ago, to my chagrin, I discovered that uh, several cast members of the original Star Trek series don't like William Shatner. I don't understand. <laughs> He's Captain Kirk. I love him. But apparently, and it bothers me, it bothers me to this day, I've come to accept the fact that apparently um, William Shatner is not always easy to get along with. That doesn't matter, because it's still on my very shallow bucket list to meet him. I better get started. But division and unity also bother me in much bigger and more important ways. It bothers me in terms of the nation when we are divided. It bothers me in terms of the Church of Jesus Christ, whether, whether it's the local congregation or the Church Universal. Disunity, division bother me, so I'm bothered a lot of the time, I guess. We don't get along... When there is disunity, I find it troubling. And again, I'll say that I am often part of the problem, not part of the solution. I would imagine that most of us have something in our lives, some bad relationships that, that make us feel that way. Maybe it's tension in the workplace. Maybe it's extended family gatherings or the in-laws. Maybe it's the grumpy person in your neighborhood. Maybe you're the grumpy person in your neighborhood. Stop it if you are. But if, if disunity, if division disturbs you, you, you and I have that in common with Jesus because Jesus doesn't like division and disunity either. The Apostle Paul doesn't like disunity. And he's about to tell us that God in Christ has a plan to fix that. So here's the good news we're going to celebrate in this week's passage. One day God will bring unity to all things. One day God will bring unity to all things. Now that may sound a little new agey to you, but it's right out of the Bible. One day God will bring unity to all things. And furthermore, whatever that happens, whatever that happens in the future, new creation, new heavens and earth, when that takes place, if it's true then, it is already true now to greater and greater degrees. One day God will bring unity to all things. That's already washing back over us now if we're open to it. This bringing of unity to all things is the point of all of history. We hear it in Ephesians 1, verses 8 to 10. There, after celebrating all the spiritual blessings that we have received in Christ Jesus, the Apostle Paul writes this. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. More literally, what it says is that God intends at that time to put the head back on what was beheaded. To recapitulate. What has been decapitated is recapitulated. It's put back together. And for Paul, in much of the book of Romans, that's meant the coming together of both Jews and Gentiles as God's people. It's something, this unity is something that Paul talks about a lot in his letters. It's very important to him. 
In chapter 15 of Romans, Paul finally begins to name something that he's been building toward for 14 chapters. So far in our journey through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, he has acknowledged that we are all sinners, Jews and Gentiles alike. We are all unified in our need for a Savior. He's introduced us to the grace and mercy of God toward all people through His chosen people, Israel. He's begun to instruct us on how we are to live in light of God's mercies poured out upon us in Christ. In Romans 12:1, he told us, in view of God's mercy, we are to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. For this is our reasonable, fitting, proper worship of the God who has saved us. In response to God's mercy and grace, we are to live sacrificial lives among our sisters and brothers in Christ when they are weak, when they are difficult, when they are different than we are. We are to live sacrificial lives in public with those who do not know Christ, and even and especially with those who are our enemies. Now, in chapter 15, Paul begins to show us God's end game. Paul moves beyond his call for tolerance and patience in Romans 14 to something deeper, something more costly, something more beautiful. Before he gets there, however, he rounds off his discussion from chapter 14. In chapter 14, Paul exhorted the strong, the group of people who were mostly Gentile believers, not to despise the weak, They're mostly Jewish brothers and sisters who still sought to live their lives according to the Jewish law. He's urged the weak to stop judging and condemning the strong for their Gentile ways. God is building something, Paul says, and we need to make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification, as he said in verse 19 of chapter 14. In chapter 15, Paul continues a bit on this theme and then goes further up and further in. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak, And not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. Paul challenges the strong to bear with the weaknesses of those who are powerless in that culture and to support them. And in doing so, Paul does something that might surprise us. He includes himself as one of the strong. We who are strong. He's changed the pronouns. We who are strong. Why? He's Jewish. He's not Gentile. Paul identifies with the strong because he is practicing what he preaches. He has come to the place of truly accepting all people, wherever they are in this relationship and this life of faith. He has become convinced, as he said back in 14.14, that no food is unclean. He's moved from being one who kept the law, perhaps at times legalistically, to one who has found the freedom to set aside the law. He is one of the strong now. He's been so tolerant and so patient with them that he now fully understands them and the freedom that God has given them to live the way they live. And as one of the strong, Paul exhorts others who are a part of this group to bear with the failings of the weak, and he gives them Jesus as their example. Verse 3, For even Christ did not please himself. The person in all of the universe, throughout all history, above any other who has the right to please himself, doesn't please himself. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. We are to identify with the weak in their failings just as Christ has gone the whole way and identified with each and every one of us in our failings, in our weaknesses, in our sin, by becoming one of us and dying for us. For the strong, for those who have the freedom, you remember, to eat meat and drink wine that has been sacrificed to idols, The Christ-like thing to do for the strong is to defer their needs to the needs of their weaker sisters and brothers. 
Paul bolsters his use of Christ as our example by quoting from Psalm 69, verse 9. The insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. It's a, it's a verse in the Psalms that has nothing to do with Jesus, but Paul is applying it. He uses this psalm to describe Jesus' choice to identify with us even to the point of his own demise. And then because he's just used a psalm in this way, for some reason Paul now says this is the time to take a sentence and explain why he can use Psalm 69.9 in this way. And in doing so, he's justifying the other 74 times he uses Hebrew Scriptures in the book of Romans. Only three other New Testament books quote the Old Testament more. Revelation, Hebrews, and Matthew in that order. To the question the, the, the Gentiles in particular may have been asking Paul, why do you keep using these strange Hebrew Scriptures to make your point? Paul replies that although, although the, words, the words are old, they're from another culture, they still have something to say to us. Verse 4, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Then over in Philippians 2, Paul is going to make a similar point. We are to be like-minded in the body of Christ, he says, the church. We are to have the same love. We are to be of one mind and one spirit, not looking to our own interests, but to the interests of others. And again, he gives us Christ as the example, Philippians 2, verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, something to be held onto, to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Likewise, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 31 and following, Paul describes his own approach in these things. And remember from last week that some of the issues that the Corinthians are dealing with are the same as some of the issues the Romans are dealing with. And so Paul says to them in chapter 10, verse 31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Follow my example, Paul says, as I follow the example of Christ. Again, Although Paul lifts himself up as their example in these things, ultimately it goes all the way back to Jesus. Jesus is our supreme example of a living sacrifice, and he has identified with, with us in our weakness so that we can identify with the failings of the weak in our lives too. In other words, the strong, the strong are to do the opposite of what their culture values and teaches. I mean, in Rome, it's all about power and conquest and victory. But Paul asks them and us to imitate Christ and his sacrifice instead. And then for the first time, for the first time in the book of Romans, since chapter 1, Paul offers a prayer. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. He's calling to mind that passage from Philippians. So that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And with that, Paul brings us to this end game. To the place, the reality toward which God's been heading all along and Paul's been heading all along. So that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can do this because we know that one day God will bring unity to all things. Whereas he had before urged the people of the Roman church to 
who, who, to be strong and, and weak as they are, to be tolerant of one another, to defer to one another's needs. Now he calls them to something more beautiful, something deeper, something more costly. Now he calls for a true unity of mind. A true unity of mind through which Jews and Gentiles together will be able to bring glory to God with one voice. Yes, we must engage in laying our lives down for one another. We must engage in giving up our rights, our desire to judge and condemn and despise one another for our differences. But more than that, more than that, we strive to keep the unity of the Spirit that God has given us. Why? Because we know that one day God will bring unity to all things. And if that's where things are headed, then we'd better be doing it even now. If that is the thing that is on God's heart, we'd better be giving ourselves to it even now. Paul then quickly rehearses the, the history of God's work uh, through the promises of the, to the people, the Jewish people, and then his delivering on that promise in Christ. And once again, the New International Version uh, translates this as accept one another, but I, and that's, in my opinion, too passive. Uh, I think that a better translation might be welcome one another, so I'm going to read it that way, verse 7. Welcome one another then, just as Christ welcomed you in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph, and Jacob, may, might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And then Paul marshals the power of all the Hebrew Scriptures to make his point, the Old Testament, to demonstrate that this idea of creating one new humanity out of the two groups of people has always, always, always been part of God's plan. What many of us may not know uh, today is that one of the names by which the Hebrew Scriptures are referred to by Jewish people is Tanakh. Tanakh. What does that mean? First of all, there are no vowels in Hebrew. We have to supply those. There's only, there's only consonants. So if we take the vowels out, we get the letters T, N, K. And each of those letters stands for one of the three major parts of Hebrew scriptures. Many of us know what the T stands for. That stands for Torah or Torah, which means law or instruction. It refers to the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which are sometimes also referred to as the Pentateuch, which simply means five books. The N stands for Nevi'im, which means the prophets. The prophets. It refers to the prophetic books, and it refers to the historical books in the Bible that tell the stories of the prophets. And the K stands for Ketavim, which means writings. This refers to the poetry and the wisdom writings in the books of the Old Testament. Three letters represent all of the Hebrew Scriptures. And then Paul quotes extensively from that Bible, but making sure to quote at least once from each of those three parts of the Jewish Bible. It's his way of saying that bringing unity to Jews and Gentiles is God's plan, has been God's plan all throughout history, throughout all of the Bible. He will quote from the books of 2 Samuel and Isaiah, the prophets. He will quote from Psalms, the writings, and he will quote from Deuteronomy, Torah. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again it says, rejoice you Gentiles with his people. And again, praise the Lord all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up. One who will arise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. Then Paul will take that key word hope and he'll use it to compose yet another prayer. This prayer brings to an end most of the teaching and instruction in the book of Romans. 
After this, as we're going to hear, Paul seems to be trying to land the plane. He's bringing it in. He's trying to land this plane that he's been flying this whole time. He's going to voice his confidence in the Jews and the Gentiles who make up these Roman churches. He's going to say that he believes they are able to hear and heed what he has written them. And then he feels the need to explain why he has written to them so strongly, why he has said things, things, these things a little too harshly at times, just in case he has offended some of them. You can hear it in this. Listen to Paul's tone as he writes. This verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. Yet I have written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in the leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. By the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God, so from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, again quotes from Isaiah, those who were not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. I speak so strongly, Paul says, because God has called me to something that is too important for us to miss. God fully intends to create a new humanity, one new community of people for His purpose and for His glory to bring unity to all things. And for that to happen, Jews and Gentiles are going to have to love one another and welcome one another. And yes, from time to time, just put up with one another and be tolerant with one another. Paul then close out this chapter with a couple of other housekeeping items that he wants to communicate to them. He feels he's done the work that God has called him to in the regions where he's been, and now he's ready to move on to Spain. Verse 23, But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Paul's never been to Spain, so he's planning a visit. It's not a vacation, it's a mission. In addition, while I don't think it's the major reason Paul has written this letter, it appears that one of the things he wants to do when he comes to the Roman, uh, to the Roman churches is to raise support, financial support, for this mission to Spain. That's one item of business. Paul then moves to the next item. Among the churches, Paul has been taking up a collection for the church in Jerusalem where there has apparently been a famine. People are in need. So everywhere Paul goes, you can see the several places in the New Testament. He is raising money for sisters and brothers in Jerusalem because of this famine. So let's finish off the chapter here. Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. 
I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the power and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there so that I may come to you with joy by God's will and in your company be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. I love how personal this gets. We can tend to think of Romans as this great theological document, but we forget the very personal things that are going on. This is a personal communication. And with that, Paul closes out the main body of his letter to the Roman churches. There's still a little more to go, and yes, we will look at chapter 16 too. But he closes out the main body. The end game toward which Paul has been working since we started way back in May is unity. Unity. It is the direction toward which is God taking all things. One day, God will bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth. Unity is good because it is God's nature. Unity is good because it gives glory to God. It bears witness to God's character in the world. And once again, I think it is more than obvious right now, sisters and brothers, that our community, our nation, needs to see the unity of God, the unity of the people of God. Rather than fueling the fire that scorches and divides the nation and the church of Jesus Christ, we need to be the example of the character of God and the unity that exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In John 17, in fact, Jesus prays what we often call the high priestly prayer. And in this prayer, he begins by praying for his first disciples. But toward the end of the prayer, he shifts and begins to pray for us. All the disciples who will believe in him because of their word down through the last 2,000 years. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that All of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Yes, one day God will bring unity to all things. It's always, always, always been a part of His plan. Let our response be to this good news. Let our response be that we seek to answer Jesus' prayer. That we seek to be an answer to this prayer in John 17. That we will do whatever is in our power to maintain the unity God in Christ has given us. But let's get practical. What is that even going to look like? How are we to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in a way that answers Jesus' prayer in John 17? I have five possibilities. Pick one or do them all. I double dare you to do them all. You can't. They're not mutually exclusive. First, let's start with one another internally. We are the the expression of the body of Christ that meets at the corner of South Ninth and Veterans Memorial Parkway in Lafayette, Indiana. Let's start with us. Paul tells us to welcome one another. Again, accept is too weak a word. Welcome one another. Once again, I remind you of something we encourage you to do back around Easter. That is observing the five-minute rule. For the last five minutes before worship starts, when you're coming to worship, if you get here in time, for the first five minutes after worship ends, find someone you do not know and strike up a conversation. It doesn't have to be a guest. 
or a visitor. It can just be someone you don't know that well. It can even be someone you just have strong disagreement with. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Second, each time we go to prayer as individuals, we can pray that we, the people of ECC, will live out that relational covenant that we talked about last week. Continue to get to read it and get to know it and to seek to live by it. Can you pray for that? Can you, can you read over it yourself? It's still in your Bible app, live event. There are hard copies out on the welcome counter. Living according to our relational covenant, friends, will go a long way toward helping us keep the unity of the Spirit the Apostle Paul calls us to in Ephesians 4.3. Third, there are many ways to go a little deeper in getting connected, finding a place to serve, or growing in your faith here at ECC, and all of them are good. So by talking about a few things, I'm not disparaging anything else that's going on. However, I want to lift up one thing in particular, and it comes in two parts. Part one, our community gatherings begin again in just a couple of weeks, as you heard earlier. Uh, even if you aren't ready to commit to that whole evening of learning, can you join us for a meal together? Can you do it on a weekly basis? Good things can happen at the table when sisters and brothers in Christ come together, fellowship over food. You don't have to make a strong commitment to take part in the excellent opportunities for learning and Christian formation just yet. You can just meet together and eat together. Part two, if you're ready to learn something new, all of the options that are on the insert in your bulletin could be good for you. And if one of those things rings true for you, you should follow that. However, if you're wanting specifically to find a way to respond to the good news we celebrate this morning, and you're not sure about which one to take, I want to recommend that you strongly consider the, the studying of Dan White's book, Love Over Fear. It is a message we need. It is a message our nation needs, especially as we are rapidly approaching another election year, whoopee, with even greater potential for division than the last one. If one of the other options appeals to you, by all means, join that. But if you're just considering, you're not sure, I encourage you to consider the love over fear option. <clears throat> Fourth, and this is a simple one. This is, the, this is on the lowest shelf of anything I'm going to give you. There's no reason you can't all do this one. Guilt, guilt, guilt. <clears throat> Our next Unity Sunday is coming up the last Sunday of September, September 29th. On that Sunday, as we do every fifth Sunday of a month that has five Sundays, so I always struggle to find a way to say that so everybody grasps it. As we do every fifth Sunday in a month that has five Sundays, we will only have one worship service. It's your worship service. No inconvenience to you. It's the 1030 service. You can be here. The early service are giving something up to be a part of that. We do this to celebrate our oneness in Christ. Our worship attendance usually goes down on Unity Sunday. I don't know why that is. I could take some guesses, but I don't know why that is. But I do know, if you've not been to one of our Unity Sundays, you're missing out on something God is doing. Can you commit to being a part of our next Unity Sunday on September 29? Finally, one of the ways that we pursue unity as the body of Christ here at ECC is by being together, worshiping together, growing together. The teaser video we showed you just before the sermon is meant to point toward a sermon series for this fall. We are stepping out of the narrative lectionary that we've been a part of for the last three years because we feel it's important that we do this, that we take time to talk about these things. The ministry planning team, part of our Vitality Pathway, the ministry planning team, in concert with the pastoral staff and with council's support, is proposing a redefining, a sharpening of our vision. This sermon series will focus on three key elements of that vision, what we are calling touchstones. 
Touchstones, by the way, were pieces of fine-grained dark stone that were formerly used for testing gold alloys. By observing the color of the mark, the alloys left in the stone when scratched against it. From that, the term has come to mean a standard or criterion by which something is judged or measured. A standard or criterion by which something is judged or measured. This fall, beginning the week after Labor Day, we're going to walk through these touchstones together. Can we make a commitment to be there weekly where possible and take part as a commitment to our unity of purpose? If God is bringing unity to all things, that includes purpose. And we need to discover how our purpose fits in with that purpose. Can we do that? Those are a few possible responses to the good news this week that one day God will bring unity to all things under Christ. If it's on God's heart, why not get started pursuing it now? If it's where God's taking all things, why not join in any way we can to become an answer to the prayer that Jesus prayed? To do something that pleases the heart of God. Would you pray with me as we close?